As I read Joel chapter 1, and if you're having trouble, uh, there are Bibles in front of you and it's on the screen, but also uh, Joel is, if you, you can find the table of contents in the Bible, that's fine too. Um, But if you find Isaiah, the big prophets, you have Isaiah, you have Jeremiah, you have Ezekiel, you have Daniel, and they start getting smaller, Hosea, and then after Hosea is Joel. Okay, so it's a little book kind of wedged in what's called the minor prophets. And as you will see as we press into the book of Joel, they are not minor because they're light. Um, They're minor just because they're shorter. So hear the word of the Lord as I read Joel chapter 1, beginning at verse 1. The word of the Lord that came to Joel, the son of Pethuel. Hear this, you elders. Give ear all inhabitants of the land. Has such a thing happened in your days or in the days of your fathers? Tell your children of it and let your children tell their children and their children to another generation. What the cutting locust left, the swarming locust has eaten. What the swarming locust left, the hopping locust has eaten. What the hopping locust has left, the destroying locust has eaten. Awake, you drunkards, and weep and wail, all you drinkers of wine, because of the sweet wine, for it is cut off from your mouth. For a nation has come against my land, powerful and beyond number. Its teeth are lion's teeth, and it has the fangs of a lioness. It has laid waste my vine and splintered my fig tree. It has stripped off their bark and thrown it down. Their branches are made white. Lament like a virgin wearing sackcloth for the bridegroom of her youth. The grain offering and the drink offering are cut off from the house of the Lord. The priests mourn the ministers of the Lord. The fields are destroyed. The ground mourns because the grain is destroyed. The wine dries up. The oil languishes. Be ashamed, O tillers of the soil. Wail, O vine dressers, for the wheat and the barley, because the harvest of the field has perished. The the vine dries up. The fig tree languishes. Pomegranate, palm, and apple, all the trees of the field are dried up, and gladness dries up from the children of man. Put on sackcloth and lament, O priests, Wail, O ministers of the altar, go in past the night in sackcloth, O ministers of my God, because grain offering and drink offering are withheld from the house of your God. Consecrate a fast, call a solemn assembly, gather the elders and all the inhabitants of the land to the house of the Lord your God and cry out to your to the Lord. Alas for the day, for the day of the Lord is near. And as destruction from the Almighty, it comes. Is not the food cut off before our eyes? Joy and gladness from the house of our God. The seed shrivels under the clods. The storehouses are desolate. The granaries are torn down because the grain has dried up. How the beasts groan, the herd, herds of cattle are perplexed because there is no pasture for them. 
Even the flocks of sheep suffer. To you, O Lord, I call. For fire has devoured the pastures of the wilderness, and flame has burned all the trees of the field. Even the beasts of the field pant for you, because the water brooks are dried up, and fire has devoured the pastures of the wilderness. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we come acknowledging our need. We need you to open our eyes. We need your spirit to unclog our ears, to overturn our hearts as unplowed ground. So that where we have become calloused, where we have become unrepentant, where we have become apathetic, lethargic, and numb, where the soil of our hearts has been packed down by resistance to you, by the onslaught of wickedness surrounding us in this world, by the movements of our very own sinful natures that remain the effects of indwelling sin, we ask that now, Holy Spirit, that you would take the blade of your plow, drive it through our hearts, that your word might find fertile ground today. And that, Lord, by your mercy and grace, you would accomplish your will through your word even today. So, Father, I now pray that whatever proceeds from this mouth that is not of you would fall to the floor and remain unheard. For the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God endures forever. Lord Jesus, you said heaven and earth may pass away, but your word will never pass away. So, God, today, Eternal God, on this day, would you speak? Speak, O Lord. Father in heaven, speak. Your children are listening. Have mercy in the name of Christ. Amen. You may be seated. The question that I want to answer or help answer this morning is what do you do when devastation comes? What do you do when devastation comes? What do you do when difficulty comes? What do you do when trials come? What do you do when the confusion comes? What do you do when it seems like the dawn is far and darkness rules the day? That you may have been in such Sorrowful times, maybe you have been, maybe you are, but one thing can almost be sure is that all of us at some time will be surrounded. And if we were to take stock, which I'm not going to do right now, of the cultural upheavals that have happened in our world, the revolutions against 
time-honored, God-instituted institutions like marriage. The rebellion that's been typified in the confusion about gender. The wanton disregard for life in all of its stages. It seems as though if we were to roll up the stained glass windows and take a peek outside. Though the sun is shining, there would be spiritual darkness. Cultural darkness. A country, a culture, a society beset. Not only perpetrating the devastation, but being victimized by it as well. And though this book is written so long ago, the dating of Joel is, is really hard to pin down. He doesn't give us the clues that someone like Isaiah or Hosea gives us. They say, I'm a prophet, Isaiah, during the reign of kings, this guy, this guy, this guy. And so you get an idea of when in the history of the Old Testament, some of the other prophets Prophesied when they exercised their ministry. We don't have any of those clues with Joel. There are arguments from silence, and I'm not going to get into all of this. I think it is best regarded as the scripture comes to us that we don't know and we need to be okay saying, I don't know exactly when Joel is prophesying. But he's prophesying at a time of devastation. He's prophesying at a time of difficulty. Verses that I just read, verse 4 tells us of a, a locust plague that has consumed the land. I don't think that this is a symbol of an earthly army yet. There are places in Scripture where that is true, but I think this is literally a locust swarm. And not just a swarm, but we get this imagery of Cutting locust, swarming locust, hopping locust, destroying locust, that this repetition magnifies the devastation that these locusts have had. And you're thinking, what can a locust do to me? Do you know what a locust is? It's like a big grasshopper. Sometimes they'll pop up from time to time. But you would think about in, a, in an agricultural, agrarian society, so tied to the land, so tied to the, the seasonal planting and harvest, sowing and reaping. So much so that even in the, the parables of Jesus, you see so many agrarian images of, of sheep and of shepherds and of soils. That their lives, unlike us, their lives rotated and orbited around what was happening with the land. You think, well, I've got to get some... Frosted flakes, I need something for breakfast. Let me go to Food Lion or IGA. Or maybe you need something organic, so you make a trip. No judgments. We just look at you funny. Just kidding. But it wasn't like that. These swarms of locusts that came swarm after swarm after swarm. Can you feel the, the fear mounting? With each swarm of locusts, there was another crop lost, another field consumed. And a field consumed, they were so tightly connected to the land, 
another field consumed meant another however many meals missed. It meant another number of households hungry. It meant elderly and middle-aged children and parents, grandparents and babies going hungry. And with each swarm, it felt like they could not get away. With each swarm, it felt like another pillar that they were leaning on. Well, maybe, and forgive me, I don't have a list of all the crops, but maybe the barley. Maybe we can live off the barley until the next crop pops up. Maybe we can live off the corn. Or if you're South Carolina, it's like soybeans everywhere. Corn and soybeans. Maybe we can live off this and it's gone. Maybe we can live off this and it's gone. Maybe we can live off this and it's gone. Can you, can you at least begin to sympathize? Even though I can't think of a time in our lifetime, our lifetimes, where we've endured anything like this. Devastation has crept in around Israel. And so Devastation and distress. It's all around them. And while our famine is not a famine of physical food, it is the famine that the, the prophet Amos prophesies that there is a famine in the land. There is a want for not only the word of God preached, but the word of God believed and lived. There is a famine of righteousness. There is a famine of holiness. And dear ones, we are reaping the devastating whirlwind of it. This desire to cast off all restraint of our maker. To throw aside his bonds. And say that we can be our own people. I can be my own man. You can be your own woman. Or I could be my own woman and you could be your own man. That we have somehow within our hands the sovereign ability to call down, up, and up, down, good, bad, and bad, good. And the problem is, is that when we do that, which is the, the movement of people in the rebellion against God. When we do that, we will inherently, without fail, rub up against the world that the sovereign God has made. And you know what it looks like? When people in their rebellion, when we choose our own way, when we choose our say, I can be the, the captain of my ship, the master of my fate, I can determine what is right and good and true and beautiful. And you know what that looks like when people operate in God's world, thinking and living that way? I'm going to ask you a question. Have you ever grated cheese? It's the block of cheese up against the steel or aluminum, whatever it's made out of. Cheese grater. Which one ends up at piece in pieces at the end of the day? The cheese. Which one do you think fallible people made of dust? If we continue to bump up against 
the way that God has made the world and what God has said, we will be disintegrated. We will be torn asunder. We will continue to bear out the decreative forces of the judgment and the wrath of God. Rendering the cheese block into cheese shreds or crumbles, depending on your cheese preference. So how do we, as God's people, respond? How, how, do, we, how do we live now? I want to give you three things from our text, from Joel chapter 1. This is not an exhaustive list, but it's a beginning. First of all, we must listen, we must lament, and we must long. We must listen, we must lament, and we must long. Verse 2 begins, hear this, you elders, give ear all inhabitants of the world. Joel, whose name means Yahweh is God. The Lord is God. He comes to the leaders and to all of the people of Israel. His message is, hear. Listen. Note, and I think, I mean, he's, he's speaking about, listen to what, I, what, the, what the Lord is saying through me, he says. But I believe he's also saying, Listen to what he is teaching you through what you are experiencing. That there is an experiential communication that the God who is the Lord, who is the maker of the heavens and the earth, and he sits on his throne and he does whatever he pleases, that we know that if if Yahweh is God, that means that Yahweh is sovereign. That means he is control. That there's not a rogue, as R.C. Sproul said, there's no, there's a rogue molecule in the universe. And so that these sweeping hordes of locusts are not outside of the bounds of his purposes for his people. But in fact, the promise of God is that even the hordes and the swarms of the locusts will accomplish his ends. Elsewhere in Isaiah, he calls them from the east and he sends them back to the west that he exercises by his word dominion over the created order. You see the sovereign word of God in Jesus' very ministry over creation. Do you you I know you remember the story of Jesus and they're crossing in the boat. He goes down to sleep and all of a sudden there's a storm and everybody's losing their brain. And so they go get Jesus. And what does Jesus do? He says, peace, be still. And peace, be still. He exercises a rulership over creation. So if the winds and the waves are going to obey him, then certainly locusts are too. And if that's true of the locusts in ancient Israel, it is also true of the devastations that have been wrought out in your life. It's also true of your trials. It's also true of your distresses, of your difficulties, 
of your lonely nights where you're so confused and you're, you're berated with worries and anxieties and it seems like the day will never come. Even those things, God has a purpose for His people. So if He is the sovereign God and He is ruling through providence, He sits on His throne and He does whatever He pleases, that means that in the midst of your sufferings, there is something that God has for you. The Apostle Paul helpfully, it's good because it was inspired by the Holy Spirit, in Romans chapter 8, attends our lives with God's purpose. That God works together all things for the good of those who love Him and are called according to His purpose. Dear ones, that promise doesn't mean anything if God does not exercise rulership over all things. There's no way that God can say, I'm going to work all things for your good, but only these things. I didn't really mean that all things. I meant just these things. I don't know where that stuff came from. No. All things. And so just just in this moment, take a, take a chronicle of your life. And you think about the, the losses that you've endured. Think about the difficulty in which you are now where you're, you seem like there's one thing on this side and another thing on this side and you feel constrained and squeezed and you don't know the way out. God says, listen. Listen to me. And what I mean by that, I don't mean go and say, I'm going to you know, sit quietly and meditate on all my suffering and somehow it's all going to get better. Hmm. But take your suffering and go to God and listen to what He says to you in His Word. Listen to what He says to you. And in fact, the sufferings that you go through, your personal experience, not only is that instructive, but Jesus in Luke chapter 13 makes all suffering instructive to us. Listen to the beginning, verses 1 through 5 of Luke chapter 13. There were some present at that time who told him, that they told Jesus, about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. So Pilate exercised a wicked dominion over the Galileans, and he killed them and while they were doing worship and, and Uh, offering their sacrifices to God. And Jesus answered them, Do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans? Do you think the people that suffered that way were worse than everybody else? Because they suffered in this way. No, I tell you. And here's the instruction that you should glean, that we should get from all suffering in this world. No, I tell you. But unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. And then Jesus offers an example of his own. He says, or those 18 on whom the tower of Siloam fell and killed them. Do you think that they were worse offenders than all the others who lived in Jerusalem? No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. 
Jesus takes two instances. One is called a moral evil and the other is called a natural evil. One, people lost their lives at the hands of a wicked despot and Pilate. The other would seem like an accident. The tower fell and fell on some people. And Jesus says, you should get the same lesson. You're not better. We're not better. They're not, they, were, they didn't suffer that because that happened to them. You look at the things that are happening in our world. The wars and the plagues and the sufferings. They don't happen because some people are better than other people. But they should be instructive to us that unless something changes in us, we will all meet a worse end. Repent, I say, or you will likewise perish. How should you be instructed by the war in Ukraine and Russia? How should you be instructed by pandemics? How should you be instructed by cancer and heart disease? How should you be instructed by abortion? How should you be instructed in this fallen world? We must listen To the word of God. And chapter 1 is addressed to everyone. It's addressed to the elders in verse 2. The drunks in verse 5. The farmers in verse 11. And the priests in verse 13. Everyone receives the same message. Everyone in whatever station, whatever season of life need to receive this same message. Listen. Listen to God. Listen to His instruction. Because we are in this tension. How should Christians live? How should we follow God today? We should begin, I hope, As you're thinking about the despair around us, you begin to feel the tension between the world as it is and the world as it was created to be. When God wraps up the creation account in Genesis and he says, behold, it's very good. And we look around us and we see so much that is not very good. Objectively so. What ought we to learn? What should we imbibe into our souls? Verse 15, for the day of the Lord is near. The day of the Lord is, and we'll press into this as we get into Joel But the day of the Lord is the day that God has appointed when he will bring the world to rights. There will be a final accounting of every person and every individual that has ever been. There will be an accounting before the sovereign Lord. And what we will see in the book of Joel is that even through that judgment day, 
God brings out salvation for His people forever. He restores the world and brings forth new heavens and new earth by means of the day of the Lord. So not only are we pinched between the world as it is and the world as it was designed and made to be, which would just leave us with grief. But our grief is attended with the hope of the world to be. We must listen and we must lament in the middle of this dissonance. The middle of this tension. It's almost like a piece of rope. Uh, of chewing gum that gets stretched out too thin. It's what it feels like to live in the world as it is and the world as it was designed to be. And we should lament. We should lament the world that was lost. We should lament our own sin and the contribution that our fallenness and our wickedness has contributed to this world. We should lament how... Not only does sin, something that we perpetrated, is something that victimizes still. It consumes young children and old people and it causes suffering to fall upon our own heads. We should lament, even as Jesus lamented over Jerusalem in Matthew chapter 23. We have lamentation in verse 8 and in verse 3, I mean verse 13. It's two different words in Hebrew, but we should cry out and recognize and tell the truth. The Christian message about the world around us is not strawberries, daisies, rainbows, care bears. Everything's going to be fine. That's on the other side, so to speak. But lamentation, the, the, the proclamation of woe. Woe because this world isn't as it was designed to be. And woe because this world will be held accountable for as it is. And not just the world, but you and me as well. So that when Christians, when we lament, when we grieve, we're telling the truth in hope. We can tell, we can lament, we can pour out tears over cancer diagnosis because we have the promise that the, the, the assurance that this is not how the world was made and we have the hope that this is not the way it's always going to be. We can grieve, but we grieve in hope. I think the action of lament is one that Christians in the West have just, we forgot. That muscle has atrophied because we haven't had to use it. We feel like we haven't had to use it. But we lament like a virgin wearing sackcloth for the bridegroom of her youth. You see where this lamentation comes from. We can say, yes, we lament and we grieve and we mourn because of the world that, that as it is, is not like it was designed in the garden. But that's not what's happening in verse 8. The lamentation, the wailing of a virgin wearing sackcloth for her bridegroom. That there is a distance between where she is and where she will be. That she has not yet 
She's wearing sackcloth. She hasn't put on her wedding gown yet. And dear ones, so much of that should be the posture of the church before the consummation of the ages. Now we wear sackcloth, visualizing our lamentation, visualizing our grief over our own sin and over the fallenness of this world. But we also look, hopefully, at the day when Jesus will bring in the full number of his people and his bride will be adorned with glory beyond words in the book of Revelation. And we will all seat, be seated at the marriage feast of the Lamb, the full church, the bride of Christ, having realized for which, for that she has been saved. Stepping into the very presence of Jesus with no more sorrow, no more sickness, no more suffering. So our grief is one of expectation. But it also is one of longing. The virgin longs for the wedding day. Longing. What's fascinating is as Jesus takes up this metaphor of a bridegroom in Matthew chapter 9 where he's talking about fasting. It says, because they came to him and said, why are your, why are your disciples? Everybody else is fasting. Pharisees are fasting. Uh, John the Baptist guys, they're fasting. Why aren't your disciples fasting? And Jesus says, it's a, it's, it's more, the, there's more to the answer than this, but this is part of the answer. He says, why are you going to fast when the bridegroom is with you? But the bridegroom will be removed from you and then you will fast. Our fasting is one that is a mixture of hope and brokenness. It's a mixture of lament and expectation. Our lamentation, our our declaration that this world is not as it was, nor is it what it will be. Is an expression of longing for the Lord Jesus and his coming. We can't take a triumphalistic posture in this world, but nor can we take a defeatist posture in this world. But we look to the day, whether that day be 10 seconds from now. 10 years from now, 10 billion years from now, we look for the day when Jesus will come. For the day of the Lord. And we live out that expectation today with a posture of looking to Jesus and longing for Him. And as we long... As we look to the day of the Lord. One particular way that our lament should be expressed is through repentance. That we should be reminded as we think about the devastation that's wrought around us. And we think about the brokenness around us. We should also continue to see. Even though the Spirit of God lives within us, even though we're made the temple of the Holy Spirit, we should continue to see in us and recognize 
point out and repent of the indwelling sin that would pull us away from Christ. And this is the danger, dear ones. When the devastation is not just in us, it's not just our localized story, but it seems to be surrounding us on every front, that we would run to other saviors rather than Jesus. And so maybe one particular point of repentance for you is to repent of lesser saviors. Repent of lesser gods. The things and the people, the individuals that you believe are going to save you and deliver you or save our country and deliver our country. If those aren't Jesus, then you need to lay them down in repentance and run to Christ. Throughout the prophets, we see God's people, Israel, they come into a pinch point and rather, rather than running to the maker of the heavens and the earth, they run to Egypt. Maybe Egypt can save us. Maybe Assyria can save us. Maybe this thing can save us. All the while, going to church on Sunday, so to speak, showing up at synagogue, showing up at temple, doing the, the sacrifices with a hollow heart. And so this might be an opportunity of self-reflection. It's not, it's not a might. This is not a subjunctive. It is. This is an indicative. This is a statement. This is an opportunity. Say, where, where is my trust? When things are hard, where do you go? Do you look to entertainment to numb you? Do you look to the movies, to the games? They all have their place. I'm not, don't miss the point. Or miss it and quit it all and focus on Jesus. I don't care. Do you run to those things saying, if I can just get my mind away, I'll be at peace? Do you say, man, can you see how jacked up this world is? If I can just get, if we could just get over ourselves in politics and get the right people in the right spots with the right laws, all that has its place too. Those are all sorry saviors. Because they can't save. And we can list them out. There's the sin that we love. Those hidden things that we have yet to lay down before the Lord. And the thing that you need to know. Alas for the day in verse 15. The day of the Lord is near. And as destruction from the Almighty, it comes. As the locusts came, Israel. Consuming, not leaving a square inch of the land untouched. So will the judgment of God come. And the sight of the Lord, He sees all. We cannot hide. You cannot conceal. You cannot run. And so much of what we do in our world today is we conceal, we hide, we run. Rather than repenting and believing that Jesus has died for those things.
Christ has died for it, and you are believing in Jesus, it does not have dominion over you any longer. You can be free. Run to Jesus today before you stand before him on that day. And give an account. Run to Jesus today, longing for him. Longing for him. He is the pearl of great price. He is the treasure buried in the field that the man sold everything that he might go and buy that field. Dear one, if you get anything from today, go find Christ. Find him for the first time. Know that that invitation is to you. There's no reason for you to go running and hiding. You must know that one day you will die or Christ will come and you will give an account for your life. What will be your hope on that day, dear one? Will it be you? As all of your hiding devices are stripped away. And all the, the dark nooks and crannies of your life are laid bare before the glory of the everlasting God. Where will you run? There will be nowhere to go. There will be nowhere to go then. But there is somewhere to go today. You can run to Jesus. Run to Jesus. He says, come to me, all you who are weary, and I will give you rest. Scripture says, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. What would it be like for all of those, those nooks and crannies, those dark holes of your conscience, conscience of where sin resides, where guilt lives, where shame continues to rear up at you? What would happen if today the precious cleansing flood of Christ's blood washed you clean and there was nowhere in you that was not cleansed by Jesus? That's the invitation to you for the first time. Come to Christ and live. Or Christian, for the love, let down your fake idols of things that you believe are going to save you. Quit lying about the Savior. Surrender to Him and say, the day of the Lord is near. I look at hope because Christ is mine. And I am His. A few, few questions. Are you listening to the Lord of your circumstances? What does God tell you in his word about where you are right now? Examine yourself, as scripture says. Are you in the faith or out of the faith? There's no middle ground. Are you trusting in Jesus or are you not trusting in Jesus? Have you felt, second question, have you felt the pain of the world as it is? In the world as it was made. Where have you sought to ease that pain? May we run to Christ. Three quick statements. How, what do we do with this? We gather. We gather as a community that tells the truth about the world. About ourselves. About our Savior. And about the world to come. We pray, 
looking, in verse 14, looking to Christ and longing. And as we long for God, that breaks forth in our lives in repentance. Repentance and faith are not a one-time thing. May that be the rhythm of our lives. As sin comes up, we turn from it and cling to Jesus. With each step growing more and more and more into His image. And if you need to make a decision today, if you feel like your life is just potholes of guilt and shame, I want you to know that Jesus would have you as you are, but He will not leave you as you are. You can come, be forgiven and cleansed. Call upon Christ and live. I would love to pray with you and talk to you about that. Christian, if you are feeling that, where anxiety and despair would rule your day, would you take a fresh glimpse, fresh long gaze at Jesus sitting, ruling, Returning. See the world as it is. But see the world as it's going to be. And find hope. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word and we pray that you would cause these seeds to bear good fruit, multiplying, replicating for your name. We pray this in Christ.